0: Hello, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 20-minute conversation between myself and Evergreen Senior Analyst Gehrman Howell. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: Hey listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode.
0: All right, so we've got Garman Howell back with us, uh, Evergreen's senior analyst, and and Garman, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Not every day I get to talk to somebody who's a graduate from both Boston College
2: and Boston U. That's right. I had to see how the other half lived after seeing how one half lived. Big Pretty rivalry. Amazing.
0: Well... I'm glad I'm glad uh, I'm glad you were there and I'm glad you're here. So we're going to get started on China. That's the big news of the day. Debt ceiling as well, but let's talk let's start with China, the Evergrande situation. Um, it, you know, is there contag- contagion that we're worried about what you know, what's going to happen there and what are the things that that we're preparing for?
2: Sure. No, it's definitely been top of mind for the market and kind of top of the headlines of the last several days. Um, Obviously, we had kind of a rough day on Monday um, as a result of that. But I think it it helps to kind of zoom back a little bit and and figure out why China's having to deal with this right now and kind of how it came about. You know, really back through 2011, China's been taking on a lot of debt, um, investing in the development of its own country versus kind of lending it out to other countries for the development of, you know, say the U.S. or Europe. So, you know, as a result, China's taken on quite a bit of debt um, over the last decade. Um, and I think we've all seen some of those headlines of China building out all these cities and in anticipation of pretty rapid growth and kind of the, the middle class going into, into cities versus being in the rural kind of areas of China. And as a result, buying you know, apartments and all that stuff. Unfortunately, we've seen headlines throughout that decade of kind of ghost towns, you know, as a result of being kind of on the anticipatory uh, build out versus kind of a, a a reaction, which is, I think, kind of more typical kind of in developed worlds. So, you know, what you've seen over the last decade is a massive, massive development of cities. And as the middle class has grown with China, the middle class has invested that um, largely into real estate. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's as a result of having not a ton of investment alternatives. So you let, it led to several, you know, families having several apartments versus just one that they live in um, as their primary residence. And so we've seen a fairly large amount of vacant out of apartments in these developed cities uh, in China now. So it's made housing pretty unaffordable. Um, but it's also caused kind of the inability of developers like Evergrande to continue to develop these apartment buildings, condo complexes, uh, stuff like that, because you can't really invest continually in real estate if, you know, the apartments are getting more and more expensive with just vacant um, homes being on the market or not on the market. Sorry, just being vacant uh, as investments. Um, and so Evergrande has kind of invested in, and all these complexes, they put on a bunch of debt on their balance sheet. Um, and we're coming to a point now where we've come to just a, a point little, now, bit
0: little bit of debt. Yeah, just a little bit of debt. Well, over 90 100 billion. billion. Yeah, yeah so they have a
2: 90, so. $90, $90 billion debt outstanding, and uh, they've officially defaulted on that. But I guess, you know, to, returning to your question, you know, Evergreen's debt problem has really come about of, of a rapid investment in, uh, in a sector that's become speculative versus useful. You know, and several countries have, have gotten into trouble um, over this, you know, over the years in doing that. But I think, you know, ultimately, is Evergrande a systemic risk to the market? I think probably not. You know, it, it's going to take a lot more stress onto the financial uh Kind of system as a whole for it to kind of start to get into a contagion, uh, kind of a follow-on knock-on effect for a couple of reasons. Um, one, post financial crisis, post really 2011, the risk controls of the financial sector is kind of kind of a lot, a lot more uh, resilient. Two, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot more liquidity in the system right now, so. You know, time will tell whether Evergrande will will become kind of a bigger problem for global markets. Um, But it's really something that's kind of shaken people uh, or shaken investors over the the last several weeks, especially when you have kind of other events that have put into question the the resilience of the financial um, market, thinking specifically of the Archegos uh, scandal, you know, six, seven months back in which uh, that investor, Bill Wong, took on a bunch of leverage without any kind of solid plan to, to be able to, to take on that debt. So I think the market's shaken, but I don't know that it's necessarily a contagion risk at this point. What are the next steps with
0: Evergrande? I mean, walk us through what's, what's happening and what you foresee happening there.
2: Sure. So it's a bit of a, an interesting development here. Local markets are actually closed. Uh, lo- local financial markets are actually closed. So it's been difficult for Evergrande to actually issue debt. Now, if they were able to issue debt, I'm not sure how many people would be a buyer of that debt. So I'm not sure that necessarily puts too much more strain on the, the situation, but it certain, certainly complicates it. So officially they've defaulted. Uh, they have another interest payment due on U.S. denominated uh, US dollar denominated debt. I'm um, on Thursday. It's unclear whether they're going to default on that. And if they do, I think they're you know they've been in negotiations with their lenders on restructuring that debt um, for a long time now. So you know we could be in a situation where this is a public spectacle, but the the kind of behind the scenes negotiations are um, much closer to a resolution than we kind of as a public market know of, right? So I, I guess that's kind of the long way of saying they're they're restructuring their debt. They're going to have to restructure their debt, um, and I guess the, the real question right now is how long will that process take, and and how much of a haircut will will lenders ultimately have to take? Luckily for Does
0: China, that, would China would China have any interest in bailing bailing out like a too big to fail type thing?
2: I think it would have to take a lot more stress for for China itself to have to step in. Um, I think ultimately, um, although you know they do have a, a lot of debt and they have a lot of liabilities uh, as a whole, um, I'm not sure that one that they're going to go bankrupt and fail completely. Um, I think ultimately lenders and Evergrande itself will come to an agreement in restructuring their debt so that you know ultimately the the financial system doesn't collapse over there. But I think uh, as a whole, China would step in if things got a little bit too dicey. I don't think, you know, anyone is looking for for a total collapse. But, you know, I think the the silver lining here is that Evergrande's ultimately a property developer and their debt isn't, you know, completely based on paper collateral. So they do have property to sell off if they if it came to that. And so ultimately you do have a physical asset backing it. So sure. i say it's still a little too early to say exactly what the resolution will look like, but I think at this point, it's probably unlikely that it, it, it kind of spreads to international markets and kind of derails any any um, kind of lending um, overseas or, or even in China, really.
0: All right. Well, something we'll keep a close eye on. Um, let's shift. I want to know, what are your three favorite investment themes right now?
2: Sure. Um, I think you know, at this point, I think I'd point to three sectors that are kind of the most compelling. Um, one would be financials, another would be healthcare, and I think the third is probably energy and or materials. So, um, financials are kind of intriguing at this point. One, they're, they're still trading very cheaply. Uh, they've come back – a lot of them have come back from the throes of COVID, but still a, a compelling valuation, especially if you kind of do the work and find – well-run companies trading at a, a discount to their fair value. And I think ultimately, as we kind of progress out of COVID um, and then to, you know, a more normal uh, way of life, that interest rates will, will start to drift back up. I think the Fed's meeting today and tomorrow will ultimately kind of signal a, a path to normality um, away from this ultra accommodative state. So, you know, interest rates going up are, are ultimately a boon to financials. Um, I think healthcare is compelling at this point, um, largely on a valuation standpoint. Uh, many healthcare companies are trading at deep discounts to the market overall. And I think, you know, ultimately when you can find a, a drug manufacturer or healthcare provider in general that, you know, does a good job in running their business and they're trading at a discount that, you know, that's kind of a, a value investor's dream there, a discount and a well-run business. And, and the third uh, theme, I would say, is materials and energy. Um, energy is trading at very discounted prices, same with materials. Energy across the board um, has gotten hit pretty hard after COVID, but management teams so far are showing resilience and, and kind of were able to adapt well. Um, and they're not too eager to oversupply the market and ultimately kind of return back into their troubled state. Um, and so they're, they're being a little bit more restrained, a little bit more prudent into how they use their money and their capital. And I think materials are are intriguing at this point, especially if you look at materials that are used in actual kind of functions in society. So, you know, thinking of metals that go into batteries or semiconductors, cars and all that uh, stuff that is actually produced versus kind of more of a store of value. um, I think those have some pretty big demand tailwinds coming out of COVID, you know, going into 2022. So those, you know, have pulled back a significant amount, and I think at this point offer a pretty good value with kind of their their demand drivers uh, underlying them. Um, and I think I, I throw in kind of kind of a caveat. I think we're we have an eye on kind of inter- international markets. You know, the U.S. market has has performed phenomenally well over the last really four years, and I think the the international markets have really struggled to keep up. Uh, Part of that's deserved on the U.S.'s part. You know, the U.S. has performed well fundamentally, um, both, you know, on a country basis as well as kind of on a company basis. But at this point, a lot of the good news is priced in, whereas in international markets, I think there's still a lot to be optimistic about that is not quite in asset prices at this point.
0: I don't know if you've been watching any of the NFL games uh, and they've they've had Peyton Manning and his brother Eli Manning uh, given some like you know ongoing commentary during some of these games and it's been absolutely hilarious there's a story about Peyton Manning apparently walking like into a casino area and next to the roulette table and saying like hey how about red 18 or whatever and so all these guys that were there like took all their money off all the numbers they had it on and stacked it all up on on 18 and it hit it hit 18. Wow. So with that being said, if you had to put all of your chips on one of those sectors that you just described, what would you go all in on as your favorite?
2: Well, that's tough. Um, I think it probably, you know, if I had to put it all in one, it would probably go with healthcare. Um, I think, you know, there is kind of the headwind of, Oh, you know, Drug pricing is too high and all that. And there's certainly a lot of culprits in the market that have kind of price gouged and have been really unfair to their consumers. But I I think it's also unfair to paint the entire sector with that brush. So there's a lot of healthcare providers out there that have done a really good job over the years that have been hit by that kind of concern of drug pricing regulations, but really haven't been the culprits of it. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're running a, your business very well in your healthcare business, you're ultimately saving lives. Um, and I think that's a compelling offering, both for kind of an investor, um, one, a discounted business that's being run well, um, and two, kind of the the product itself doing some societal good. I think ultimately uh, the drug pricing will be kind of resolved, um, and the kind of the price gougers will be punished fairly um as they kind of deserve to be um but that will also unlock some of the value that the, the good operators have embedded in them so i think that's probably where i would go if i had to do uh with what mr payton did and put it all on one but good for him he's he's known for having the hot hand not surprised
0: it's an amazing story uh, i think it was uh well anyways i i and I should add, obviously, with what we do, we, we don't go all in on any one area, right? right? I mean, but it's just, I was framing the question to try to get you to commit to one thing that you liked more than the other. So um, last question, we'll wrap this up. You've talked a bit, uh, even during that, about valuations. So what I hear a lot from clients is, Jesus, market's expensive, or Jesus, you know, the, the valuations are so stretched, and, you know, you hear this theme over and over and over again. And yet we are fairly regularly making new investments in new companies that we think are reasonably priced, even in this market. So I think it would be really good to know from your perspective, like how do you find reasonably, pli- reasonably priced securities in, you know, potentially in an overvalued market?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. And that's one that I think is is kind of tough to, to wrap your head around until you do kind of a lot of digging you know, I'm not going to try to avoid the fact the market's expensive as a whole. You know, overall valuations in the S&P are a little bit stretched versus where they are historically. But if you dig down a little bit deeper and look at the constituent level, so on a company by company basis, um, there's a lot of sectors that are actually quite cheap um, relative to both their history and the overall market. You know, some of the the themes we talked about: financials, healthcare, materials, energy. All of those are trading very, very cheaply even though the S&P overall is relatively expensive. Um, I think one of the themes that we've seen over the last six to eight months is the market becoming increasingly narrow in in terms of how it's increasing, how it's going up. So you're seeing kind of the winners of COVID continue to go up um, while many of the companies below them, so to speak, um, have really stagnated. So, you know, how we kind of think about the market is we want to find themes that we think have, have, you know, multi-year tailwinds behind it. And then we go into looking at, it, you know, what companies play in those themes and which ones are the best run. And and then we go on a comparative basis and say, which companies are one run really well. And two, which one of those companies or which, you know, of those companies in general um, are trading at a cheap valuation. So um, I think if you look at the market as a whole, yeah, you know, there are some, some things to be said about it being expensive, but on a constituent basis, you know, company by company or sector by sector even, there's a lot of companies out there that are, are trading very reasonably, you know, and there's a lot of value to be to be found out there. It just takes a little bit more digging than it did back in, you know, 2020, March of 2020, when everything was on discount, everything on, was on sale. But I think we're kind of going back into that normal market state where in order to find uh, kind of a compelling value, you have to do a little bit more work. Um, and I think, you know, another thing to be said is that the U.S. market, yes, is, you know, relatively expensive, but uh, international markets aren't, you know, on the whole. So, you know, we could get to a, a point where, you know, the the market uh, breadth starts to widen out and the the kind of valuation gap between the top performers in the S&P and the bottom performers in the S&P uh, start to converge, um, and investors start looking internationally to find kind of those really deep values that we're seeing internationally. So that's kind of a, an overview on how we how we think about the market's overall valuation. You know, we try not to look at the headline, and we try to kind of find the, the fundamental value out there and, um, and then kind of find the, the best players within those.
0: I think it's helpful. I think it's really helpful for the listener, especially, I mean, whether a client or not, you know, the way I view it is, the way I view it on this topic and why I think this question is relevant and what I want the listener to take with them is knowing how Evergreen stands apart in this type of a market. So, specifically, if you're going to invest money and everything's cheap, you can make money in a passive approach. You can make money in an active approach. It doesn't matter, right? Buy anything, buy everything. Everything's cheap. You're going to make money. I'm being simplistic here, right? Yeah. Conversely, when the market is expensive, I think that's when the it tilts in the favor of active versus passive. Because if you're going to buy the entire market and valuations are really stretched, you're buying into an expensive market overall, well, then you got, like you talked about earlier, digging into actually uncovering pockets of value. I think that's when active managers end up having a really good advantage to really, uh, you know, piece out what is attractive and what's not attractive, you know, in that market. So, if you're going to work with Evergreen, I guess I would just highlight you know because of our active way of managing funds because we have an internal investment team that's digging through individual positions individual stocks and bonds backed by individual companies, we are able to, I think, uncover value in any market, up or down, right? And so, I think that's like a real key thing that I don't think is, I think it's missed too often when I talk to people because they're like, oh, yeah, well, market's up, of course, you're making money. But like moving forward, I think you got to be really selective with the areas that you're betting on. And even in themes that, you know, even in, in sectors that maybe are stretched, there's still individual companies in stretched sectors that can look Better than their peers, you know, tech for example, or whatever, right? So I just think this is like such a key uh, point to to, uh, to highlight. So I think we could do a follow up on that even down the road. But I'm gonna get you out of here with the bonus question. I really appreciate your time today. We we talked about you uh, spending some time out in Boston and enjoying uh, your time there. If what would be like the what would be like the one site that you think everybody that goes to Boston for the first time should should go check out? You're like, oh, that is that's actually pretty sweet. You should go check out and then fill in the blank.
2: Uh, good question. I think, you know, I love the city uh, as a whole, so it's hard to pick just one or two. But I think, you know, if it's your first time in Boston, I'd definitely go walk around the streets of Beacon Hill. It's kind of a quaint, you know, a lot of these side streets are are brick brick paved streets and they have kind of that town home deal. And, um, you know, if you, if you have a choice on when to go, I'd go in the fall. That's my favorite time. So I, I'd say, you know, go in the fall and go walk around Beacon Street, grab a coffee or a tea and just kind of enjoy the sights. It's a it's a quaint, calm little part of the city. Um, and then afterwards, I'd walk over to the north end, which is kind of the Italian district and grab a cup of cannolis. It's hard to beat those they're freshly made um bring cash though a lot of places don't take any credit so um i guess if you know if you had to only pick two uh those are those are the ones that i would choose
0: well, there you go. I, uh, embarrassingly enough, have never been to Boston, but my family's from that area. We go way back to James Otis Jr., who coined the phrase "taxation without representation is tyranny." So it's fun to, to have family that goes all the way back to the uh, the revolutionary period and and hang our hat a little bit on that. So, but someday I want to get back there and and check it all
2: out. Absolutely, check out your roots. There rooms.
0: you go. You didn't even know that. Battle Cry of the Republic. There you go. That's right. Evergreen Exchange podcast. Anyways, all right, appreciate your time. We'll get you back on and uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Evergreen Gobcal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.